Good morning. Uh, my name is David, and I'm an assisting priest here at Incarnation. Our gospel text this morning, uh, like last week's, is a parable. And, you know, this was a teaching tool that Jesus was famous for using as he proclaimed the kingdom of God. The parable is beguilingly simple. Uh, it's just four short verses about one man's kid who listened and one who didn't. Jesus even interprets this one for us, so it's not one of those, you know, decode the symbols things. But it gets at a central concern of Jesus' teaching, uh, presented here in his confrontations with the temple leadership. Uh, we often process Jesus' conflicts with other Jewish leaders of the time as an opposition between striving to earn God's favor with good deeds on the one hand and a reliance on the free grace of God on the other. And while that is sometimes perhaps true, I don't think that is a mold in which we can cram all of Jesus' teaching. Um, or even most of it. On the contrary, it appears that other Jewish sects of the time took for granted that they were in with God, and Jesus set out to disabuse them of that notion. To put it differently, Jesus did not criticize the Jewish leaders for following the law of Moses or the Torah too much. Rather, he accused them of not practicing Torah enough, of a merely external conformity to it that did not penetrate all the way down to the heart. This theme runs consistently throughout his teaching. In the case of this parable, the theme of Jesus' teaching takes the form of an evaluation of the chief priests and elders' response to John the Baptist. So, to appreciate what's going on in the parable of the two sons, we have to look back to the beginning of Matthew 21. There, Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, a recognition of Jesus as God's anointed one. Straight away, Jesus' first order of business in Jerusalem is to set the temple straight. In a grand and scandalous gesture, Jesus drives the money changers out, decrying how they have turned God's house of prayer into a den of robbers. This naturally sets off the alarms of the priests in charge. Such an action could cause a riot, perhaps even spark a revolt, for the Roman government collaborated with the temple establishment to maintain order and stability. If Jesus delegitimized that establishment, that could unleash a cycle of political unrest and then violent countermeasures. So the chief priests would really like to pump the brakes on this movement swelling behind Jesus. But Jesus is a popular figure. A frontal assault against him, rhetorically speaking, could backfire on the chief priests. They therefore have to try to get Jesus to discredit himself, which they set out to do in verse 23. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him, and as, as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did that come from? From man or from heaven? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say, from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say, from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Jesus now senses an opening. He sees the priests and elders want to have it both ways with regard to this popular movement started by John the Baptist, whose message Jesus endorses and develops. On the one hand, they recognize that John's message has really resonated with the common people who regard John as a holy man and prophet. It's not hard to see why. Here's a man who lives simply out in the desert, subsisting on locusts and honey, who has nothing to wear but the same old camel skins, day in and day out. He has devoted his entire life to radical obedience to God's Torah and calls upon all and sundry to do the same. The contrasts with the priests and elders could not be starker. They belong to an aristocratic class and live in relative luxury. Since they are not fools, the priests and elders humor the people's admiration for John. Recall that they even showed up at the River Jordan where John was baptizing in Matthew 3. But whether they had any intention of abiding by John's teaching or not, and John certainly didn't think they had any, they changed not a thing about their lives. So, with all that in mind, Jesus lays it on them, and he lays it on pretty thick with a parable from our Gospel reading. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, Nope. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, Of course, Dad. But he did not go. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even when you saw it, you did not change your mind afterwards and believe him. Just in case Jesus, they miss the point, Jesus spells everything out for the priests and elders. The command of the Father corresponds directly to the teaching of John the Baptist. The two sons represent the two groups of people and how they reacted to John. The first son, who said no but later did his father's will, represents the tax collectors and prostitutes. The other son, who said yes but didn't lift a finger, stands for the chief priests and elders who did not criticize John's teaching outright, like the son who said yes, and even came to him to be baptized, yet they did not live their lives according to John's message. So when Jesus says the tax collectors and prostitutes believed John and the Jewish leaders did not, this believing is not merely assenting to John's doctrines. It refers to accepting John's message and living according to what he said. So, I've been using that word a lot. Therefore, what was John's teaching that Jesus fully identified with? And I say fully identified because clearly the instructions of the Father in the parable, the teaching of John the Baptist, and the message of God himself are one and the same. So, like Jesus, John proclaimed the kingdom of God was at hand, and therefore God's people needed to get with the kingdom's program, so to speak. That meant, in the first place, to repent. That means a complete renunciation of the ways of sin in the world and a turn of one's whole self, the entire orientation of one's life to the way of the Lord. And now this next point isn't really a, a second item about what it meant, but rather an outworking of that point, which is to say that in John's words, those who received his baptism were to bear fruit in accordance with repentance. 
So it's not repentance and fruit. It's all one thing, really. And what were these fruits? In Matthew, the specifics are not mentioned, but the message is quite vivid nonetheless. From Matthew chapter 3, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, that is John, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus in Matthew, these upstanding citizens are warned against presuming upon their national heritage and kinship to save them when the kingdom arrives. John's analogy with the tree and its fruit is instructive. It's not enough for a grove of figs, he doesn't say figs, but it's got to be figs, right, Um, to claim that they are fig trees, whether they actually bear figs or not, as though simply belonging to that variety of tree is enough to save them. No, cries John, a fig tree is only as good as its fruit. So it is with the nation. The kingdom of heaven is not coterminous with your earthly kingdom. In fact, Your pride in your membership in your earthly kingdom may well blind you to how far you truly are from the heavenly kingdom. Your public citizenship ceremony for the kingdom of heaven is baptism, and your papers, the documents that prove your citizenship, are the fruits of the repentance you confessed at baptism. But Matthew does not answer the question in this immediate context as to what that fruit actually is. We have to turn to Luke for that information. Luke includes that same discourse as Matthew, almost word for word, and then goes on to fill in the details of what God, speaking through John, expected. And the crowds asked John, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort any money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. The fruit, therefore, that John was so passionately urging was justice which is the exact same word that we sometimes render as righteousness in English, in Greek, dikaiosune. So when you see righteousness, you could just swap it with the word justice, and in Greek, it's the same thing. It's not a squishy concept either. What it looks like is very concrete. Do you have more clothing or food than you need? Then give your surplus away to those who have none. Is it your job to collect money from people beneath you, socially or economically? then take only what you absolutely have to. Do you wield the sword in the name of the authorities? Use it to execute public justice and not for private gain. Will your word be trusted because of your status? Then it is incumbent upon you to tell the truth. Live off your wages. Do not use your position to coerce others into giving you more. Now, you will note that the tax collectors and the soldiers eagerly asked for these instructions from John, 
The Pharisees and Sadducees, it's safe to assume, were probably less eager to hear these things. Thus, what are we to make of all this? Jesus and John's interactions with these rival Jewish sects can best be described as a rejection of cheap grace. Cheap grace is a term most widely associated with the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in the 1930s and 40s thought the Lutheran churches in Germany had sold themselves out to the Nazi state on the basis that professing Christian faith meant it didn't really matter how violently racist or militaristic you were because, hey, you're saved by grace. It's thus a grace that makes no demands on you, that's sold at bargain bin prices, that gives you a get into heaven for free card and allows you to check out of any relationship with Jesus Christ and to live as you please. In the case of the Pharisees in the New Testament, Jesus thought that their traditions were an attempt to bend over backwards to say that one has kept the letter of the law while violating its spirit, what he called the weightier matters of the law. As for the Sadducees, who were the priestly class and therefore associated with who we read about in Matthew 21, their high status and association with the temple made them entirely too worldly for Jesus and John. They had no need for a coming kingdom of God and therefore no need for repentance. This world and the system they took part in suited them just fine. Real grace, on the other hand, delivers a shock to the whole system, starting in the heart and working its way out in a life of justice. It transforms the entire person inside and out. True grace, in other words, brings integrity. What you see on the outside reflects what's on the inside. And it's truly scandalous. It's not easy to appreciate just how vile a tax collector was perceived to be and truly was in Roman Palestine. They were considered traitors to their fellow Jews because they collected tribute from their Roman conquerors and were allowed to extort from the poor any amount they wanted on top of the tax bill. The closest thing I can think of from my personal experience would be a man who actually lived on the same street as my parents in my hometown who a few years ago was fined for millions of dollars because of his extortion schemes as a debt collector and this wasn't just any kind of debt his company collected on, but the worst kind, medical debt. This is money people had to borrow on pain of death because they couldn't afford medical treatment. And this man owned a company that went to great lengths to absolutely ruin these people. That is the kind of man Jesus said was entering the kingdom of God ahead of the priests and elders. That is the kind of man that Jesus, I guess the best way to put it is, think of anyone who you want to go to hell. Insert that for the tax collector. That is who was cut to the quick by Jesus and John's preaching, who repented of the great injustices he did and adopted a kingdom way of life. And to hear that that kind of person is entering the kingdom way ahead of you when you're the one that everyone looks up to as an expert on all things God-related, what could be more offensive? I mean, if you're one of the chief priests and elders and you're not outraged, then you simply are not paying attention. The good news in all of this is that the grace of repentance hits the great reset button. 
It could do that just as easily for the chief priests and elders as it could for tax collectors and prostitutes. You'll notice that Jesus doesn't say a word about what the two sons were doing before their father called on them to go work in the vineyard. All that matters is what they did to answer their father's call. Baptism represents this great reset, whereby the path one walks in the present and into the future is not determined by the past, which is washed away by grace. And while the grace comes as a free gift from God, that does not make it cheap. It was hard won. It was so expensive, it cost God his only son, who obeyed him even to death on a cross. But I hasten to add, whoever we see as the worst party in this parable, whether it's the tax collectors or the chief priests, this message of grace applies to both equally. The kingdom is equally open to both. What Jesus is judging them on is not their past, but their present, and their reaction to John's, and therefore Jesus' preaching. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that no matter where we are in our present state, that you give us grace that can change us. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage those who have started walking on this path long ago to persevere on it, and that for those for whom they're not sure if this is the path they want to walk, God, I pray that they will see this image of the kingdom and the justice it represents, this way of heaven as it could be on earth. I pray, God, that they will see it and yearn for that grace. God, I pray most of all for myself that I have done justice to this and that as I call for this obedience, Lord, that in my own life you will make me worthy of this message. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.